Scripture talks about marriage a lot. Uh, Jesus often teaches using metaphors, parables, stories that help us understand things that would be difficult uh, for us to comprehend otherwise. Some of those are obvious when he talks about weddings and brides and grooms, we pick up on it. Uh, Some of them are less obvious because we don't know the same kind of cultural context, historical context that his original audience knew. And one of those is in the beginning of John 14. In verse one, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, and you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So I have been familiar with this verse since I was a kid because we would sing a song about it at summer camp that went, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms and on and on. And the the gist of it that I got at the time was, okay, well, there's room for everybody in heaven and heaven's a good place to be. God's got a big house. And that's a great takeaway. There's nothing theologically wrong with that idea. If that's what you learned from this verse, that's wonderful, that's true. But I came to realize, as I, as I learned more as I was older, that there's a, there's a lot more going on in what Jesus is saying here when he's talking about going away to prepare a place for us. He's making a reference to betrothal. Uh, so in that, in that culture, in that time, uh, when a man and woman were going to be married, the groom would go to the house of the bride Um, there'd be some conversations with the father. He might have to uh, pay a price or a dowry, something like that. Uh, Might do something, a sign, kind of like we give a ring to to kind of seal the deal, so to speak. But he and the bride would be promised to each other. And just like Holly and I did not get married as soon as we were engaged, as much as we wanted to, uh, there were things to do first. And so then the groom would go away. He would return to his father's house, And he would start to prepare a place for the bride. Depending on how wealthy the family was, this might just be a room. It might be kind of building an addition on to the family home or maybe a new home on the the property if there was space. But the bride would leave her family and come and join and be a part of the groom's family. So he would be working to prepare this place for her to come and live with him for them to start their life within his father's home. Now the bride knew that traditionally this would take uh, something like a year or thereabouts, but she didn't know exactly when the groom was going to come back to get her. In fact, the groom might not exactly know when either. It was the father who was the final authority on when this place was ready. So it was him to give the final say of yes, okay, Everything is good. Now you can go and return for your bride. And so as you're hearing this, you're probably recognizing or thinking of other parables, other stories we hear about a bride waiting in the night, not sure when the groom's going to come for her, right? Being ready because you don't know the time or the hour. Those are all kind of the same betrothal metaphor. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples and, and he's using this story to say, I'm going away but I'm going to prepare a place for you. 
He's telling them this, um, this context here in John 14, this is in the middle of the Last Supper. So he's sharing a meal with his disciples for the last time, the last Passover, before he goes to the cross. He knows, they don't quite understand, but he knows that he is about to leave them. He is about to go away in a way that's going to be frightening, disheartening, discouraging to them. So he's reassuring them, this is not me leaving you. This is not the end of everything I've taught you. This is not me abandoning you. But this is like a groom going away to make a place for his bride. I'm going to prepare a place for you. We saw when, um, we, saw when we talked last time, when I, when I last preached, and we looked at the beginning of uh, John, that John said Jesus came into the world so that we might have the right to become uh, children of God, to be called children of God. That's what he came to do. That was his purpose, his mission. And so this metaphor is reinforcing that to his disciples, that what I am going to go do, what I am preparing for you, is a way for you to become a part of my father's household. He used the adoption metaphor before, and he's using the marriage metaphor now to say that the bride, the church, his followers, are going to become a part of the father's household. So he says he's going away to prepare that, and he tells them that they know the way to get there. He says, you know the way to the place where I am going. Do you know the way? Every world religion is concerned at some level with knowing the way. Every system of belief, whether we, whether we call it that or not. Taoism is a, is a religion that literally translates to the wayism. But whatever it is, whatever religion, we, we call people followers of a religion, right? They're seeking for what is the way, what is the system, what do you have to do to measure up to the bar of your beliefs, right? What do you have to do? How do you have to live to please the deity? Or how do you have to live and what do you have to think to be one with the universe, or how do you have to behave and what, what do you do and not do to be right with your fellow man, right? Whatever, whatever your God is, even if that's not a, a, a literal God in someone's mind, maybe it's just you know, your work or your mission or your identity, whatever you're trying to live up to, you have to answer that question. What's the way? What does it take to live a life that is acceptable to that thing that you've set up as God. So if we believe in the God of the Bible, the God that's revealed in the Old and New Testament, if we believe that that is the true, real God, then we have to answer that question. What does it look like to live a life that is pleasing to God? The disciples aren't sure they know the way. They're not sure they know entirely what Jesus is talking about. In verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, he's the way. It's him, and it's only him. No one comes to the Father except through him. So we can answer that question of what does it look like to live a life that is pleasing to God really easily because there has been exactly one human life that has ever been or will ever be perfectly pleasing to God. And it is the life of Jesus Christ. It is only through her connection with the groom that the bride is able to become part of the father's household. She can't go and show up and say, hey, look at all this great stuff I've done. I've got a wonderful background. Don't you want me to be one of your kids? Um, it's, it's only through connection with the groom. And it is only through our connection with Christ and the life that he lived that we can be right before the father. Now, this is where the reality of God is better than the earthly metaphor of the bride and the groom. So look in, look in verse 8, uh, 8 through 11 for me. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. They're still wondering about all this way to the Father. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. See, a human father and son can disagree with each other. Any, anyone in here a, a father who has a son? Yeah? Anybody? Yep, I see some hands. Okay. Have you always agreed with every decision your son's made? No. Any, any sons in here? I, I know. I see a couple. Yeah? Do you, have you always thought your dad is right all the time, every time? No, 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 a, hu a human father and a human son don't have the same will. They might not have the same goals or the same opinions. The son could love this bride and think she's just great, but the father could say, no, I don't think she's right for you. I don't think you're making a good decision. She's not from the, the right background or has the right reputation. But Jesus makes it clear here, as well as elsewhere, that he and the Father are one. There, there's a lot of Trinity speak throughout John 14 that you could probably do a whole separate study on, and so we're not going to dig into all of it, but he makes it clear here that, that they're not of two separate wills. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And that's one of the reasons why it is so important that we believe Jesus is fully God, that he's not just a prophet who's come to tell us, like Moses, some things God has said, 
He's not, uh, you know, a Hercules, some, you know, demigod that's kind of half divine and half not. He is 100% fully God and one with the Father and the Spirit. So we know that their will towards us, what they want for us, matches. It's easy to think when we read the Bible, it's easy to get this idea that, like, God's always angry with us, right, for for the wrong things that we've done. But Jesus is, is the lovey-dovey one. He loves us and forgives us, right? But in reality, Jesus is just as, as angry at sin as the Father is. And the Father is just as loving towards us as Jesus is. Because they're one. Do you believe that? I want to read for us real quick what our EFCA statement of faith says about Scripture. We did this the other day for our worship in unity, uh, and I really liked it. It says, We believe that God has spoken in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, trusted in all that it promises. I think that's a really great way to approach uh, Scripture and the study of the Bible. So I want to look for those things as we go through here. And I think so far in John 14, there are three big things that Jesus is, is asking us to believe, that he's teaching that we should believe. One is that he has done, when he's speaking, he's about to do it, but for us, he's done it that he has done what it takes to make us right before God. On the cross, in his death, and in his resurrection, he has prepared a place for us in his Father's house. Number two is that the only way to God, the only way to that prepared place, is through faith in him and his life and his works, not our own. And third is that we're assured of that place. We can trust that promise of that place because the one who prepared it for us is one with the Father. Do you believe that? Let's keep reading. I've already gone 17 minutes, so I'm going to read a longer section uh, now before I stop to talk about it. We're going to go from verse 12 through 21. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live in you, you also will live. 
On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. So here we get both some commands that should be obeyed and some promises that we should trust in. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I want, to, I want us to notice how upside down that is, this, this story is, from any other uh, religion or belief system that I'm aware of. Have you ever been in a one-sided relationship? I'll give you a funny example. I am in a one-sided relationship with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, about 40 minutes from Pittsburgh, about 10 minutes from St. Vincent College where they have their training camp. Everybody was a Steelers fan. And I don't even really follow football very much. I only catch a couple games a year, but I still feel like I am a Steelers fan and I should be faithful to the Steelers. Uh, so when my friends, you know, have an Eagles shirt on, you know, I, I feel the need to make a little joke at them. Or when the Patriots do well, I feel the need to be upset about it. Not because I really care, but because I feel like I should be faithful to the Steelers. The Pittsburgh Steelers are not faithful to me. <laughs> Mike Tomlin does not know my name. When Le'Veon Bell quit the team, he did not think about how it would affect Cody Crumrine and whether he was being faithful to me. It's a one-sided relationship, right? I, I feel the need I have to do things they don't. Now, at best, a one-sided relationship is comical. But at worst, it's dangerous. It's abusive. Especially if one side of the relationship has all the power and the other side doesn't. If you, if you love someone... If you're faithful to them, if you're committed to them, and they're not committed to you, and they have all the power, you are in a dangerous place. And in every other belief system that I have seen, it is on you to first follow the way, first keep the commands, first do right by your God, and then hope that he or she will love you. A relationship with a God like that is, at best, the relationship of a master and a slave, and is, at worst, the relationship of a victim and an abuser. But Jesus, who has all the power, was faithful to us before we were faithful to him. While we were still his enemies, he loved us first. He prepared a place for us first, and then he asks us to keep his command, not to earn his love, but to love him back, like the bride is faithful to the groom. And he promises that we won't do it on our own power. It's not, if you love me, keep my commands, and good luck with that. He, he tells us here that he will send his spirit, that the spirit of truth will be in us. He says we can ask for anything in his name, and he will do it. 
Now, we talked about prayer last time and how the foundation of our prayer is, again, on him and what he's doing, not us and what we're doing. So I don't think we can you know, pray for a billion dollars or for our enemies to have their houses flooded, right? But, but, but he's going to give us the power to keep his commands, to react out of love. And if the spirit that we have, again, if the, if, if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, if the spirit is in us, just as he is in the Father and we are in Christ, then we can trust that, that, that when we call on his name, we will have all the help that we need to live out that love. Let's continue in verse 22. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. I'm not going to dig too deep into this because I want to go all the way into the beginning of chapter 15 here, but I hope you noticed through there that Jesus has kind of reiterated the things that we've already covered that he's been teaching. He's told them again that I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's told them again that he is one with his Father and that he will send us his Spirit. He's told them that he's making it possible for them to be with the Father and he repeats that if you, if you love me, keep my commands. That's the way to love him back, to show our love for the groom is to keep his commands. So let me let, me, let us look at the first uh, few verses of chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You, have, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So again, we're not earning our way here. First, Jesus has made us clean. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I am in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me 
and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So we continue a theme here that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's using a different metaphor now, a vine with branches, and the branches will only be fruitful. They will only bear evidence of being connected to that vine. We can only keep his commands if, if they are connected to the vine, if we remain in him. And so we see here, he's not just our only hope for salvation, right? We said we have to trust only and fully in him and his life to be saved, to be with the Father. But he's also our only hope for sanctification, right? Have you heard us use those words before when we talk about justification? We mean being made right before God. When we talk about sanctification, we talk about becoming more righteous, becoming more like what we are already counted as. And so it's not that we trust in Jesus and what he did to save us, and now we need to work out our self-improvement on our own, but he says the only way that you can bear fruit that shows your mind, the only way that you can manage to keep my commands is to remain in me. Not work hard, be smart, and you'll bear fruit. Remain in me, and you'll bear fruit. We are faithful through his power and our unity with him, not through our own power. I'm going to keep reading verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you're so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So again, he's reiterating this, keep keeping my commands out of love for him. And it's for our joy. He says our, that our joy may be complete, not just because his commands are good and so they lead to joy, but also because there's joy in being faithful to someone and in keeping his commands and being faithful to him we, we find a more complete joy. So we've talked so much about his commands, right, that, that we need to keep his commands. We show him his, our love by keeping his commands. So what are his commands? I've heard it said before, I don't know whose the quote is, but I've heard it said that the, the scripture is a pool that is deep enough for an elephant, but shallow enough for a small child. And I love that metaphor, because what it means is that if you, if you dig into this answer, Lord, what do you command of me? What are you, what are you calling my life to? How do I show you my love and my faithfulness? You will never run out of deeper and fuller answers to that question. And he will be with you in that journey of faithfulness to really show in your life what that means and what that looks like. But this pool is also shallow enough for a child. We don't have to dig deep to understand what Jesus is telling us. And he makes it really clear for his disciples here. He's actually, just before he started talking here, if we look back a little bit, he's just washed all of their feet. So he's given them a hint there of what he wants them to do. But he follows up right here in verse 12. He makes it very clear. My command is this, love each other 
as I have loved you. Greater, has no, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. So Jesus boils it down to love. In response to the radical way that he has loved us, he calls us to love him in return and to love each other. He's done this before. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus took all 10 commandments and very cleverly summed them up in two love statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This, this, could, this sounds great when we say it, love each other. We all like the idea to love each other, but this is also hard to do, I think, or, or hard to understand as a command. Because when we, at least when I think about trying to bear fruit, trying to live out my faith, trying to do what God would have me do in the world, I'm often thinking solo. I'm thinking about me. What do I need to learn? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? What do I need to spend my time on? I don't often think, well, okay, what about my relationships? How am I loving my wife and my kids? How am I loving and living with the other believers in this church and in the world? Am I loving my enemies? Am I loving my bosses, my frustrating clients, other people in traffic, somebody at the store? It can take a lot of humility because a lot of people are not easy to love. In fact, our hearts tend to, you know, fundamentally in psychology, you know, we tend to judge ourselves by our best intentions and judge everyone else by their worst outcomes. So it is really easy, um, you know, to, to see everyone as like tough to love. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a real focus on other people. But if the God of the universe is willing to call us friends, and if his spirit is in us, the spirit that is fully God, that is one with him, then we can manage to love each other. So if you want to bear fruit for your joy and for his glory, start by asking, do I love my brother? Do I love my neighbor? Do I love my enemies? And am I... Am I doing the things I do to try to win God's favor? Or am I responding to him out of love for what he first did for me?